Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So what will it take to rid us of Governor Andrew Cuomo? He said again today, he is not resigning. We have to follow the facts, he said. Wait for the facts, weigh the facts. As I've told New Yorkers many times, there are facts and then there are opinions. And I've always separated the two. When I do briefings, I put out the facts and then I offer my opinions. But they are two different concepts. Politicians who don't know a single fact but yet form a conclusion and an opinion are, in my opinion, reckless and dangerous. The people of New York should not have confidence in a politician who takes the position without knowing any facts or substance. That, my friends, is politics at its worst. Politicians take positions for all sorts of reasons, including political expediency and bowing pressure. But people know the difference between playing politics, bowing to counsel, cancel culture, and the truth. People know the difference between playing politics, bowing to cancel culture, and the truth. This would be funny if it wasn't so preposterous. A guy who mangled and twisted facts for years to serve his interests and protect his regime is now telling you, the, us, us, that we should follow the facts. Seriously. <laughs> okay, so let's break this down. Cuomo clings to the wreckage of his administration. He says he won't resign and wants to wait for the facts. The cynics, which when it comes to Cuomo include most of us, say he's stalling, hoping this will blow over. But the truth is that the investigations now underway are at least as likely to make things even worse for him. And I'm not even just talking about the two investigations with Attorney General Tish James. There are more. The feds. There's an investigation, a police investigation in Albany raised the possibility of criminal behavior, touching, not just talking in his sexual harassment scandals. Time may really not be on his side right now. Much of the state's congressional delegation today called on Governor Cuomo to resign. They said Cuomo had lost the power to govern. That is political shorthand for, I am not wasting another ounce of political capital on you, Mr. Governor. Those calling on him to quit included AOC and arguably the most powerful member of the delegation in New York, Representative Jerry Nadler, the chair of the Judiciary Committee who just weeks ago led the impeachment of Donald Trump for fostering an insurrection. You are not that far from seeing an impeachment in Albany. Just the idea is stunning when you first think about it. The Democratic controlled assembly in Albany impeaching the governor of their own party. That would be a true true way to say it if the assembly's Democratic party was Cuomo's party, but it isn't. Cuomo's party is the Cuomo party which confusingly in New York State uh, is the New York State Democratic Party. His people, his people are part of that party, but dozens and dozens of democratically elected state lawmakers who ran on the Democratic line are not part of the New York State Democratic Party, which is actually just Cuomo's party. 
Cuomo's got his machine and there's other machines being built on the outside. Confusing, I know. All for one, that one is Andrew Cuomo. You can rule by inspiring loyalty or you can rule by invoking fear. And Cuomo chose fear. And now he has little precious loyalty to save him. As announced by the Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, the Assembly is preparing to lead the first impeachment of a New York state governor in 108 years. The only governor to ever be impeached was William Sulzer, who was impeached and convicted of pocketing campaign contributions. Now, think about this. Uh, <laughs> how bad did it have to get to impeach a New York lawmaker for corruption? Just think about that for a second. <laughs> but uh, Salzer's political offense was that he actually broke with his benefactors hmm, at Tammany Hall by ordering an inquiry into highway contracts. In other words, Salzer was punished for his disloyalty. A prophetic signal to Andrew Cuomo, who may soon wish he had tried building loyalty instead of fear. That's what's to come. Uh, and I just want to kind of break down what could happen. Uh, we are in the middle of budget time. We're starting budget time. Uh, in two weeks, Governor Cuomo is supposed to present his budget to Albany, to the legislature. This is always a very toxic time in Albany. If he were to resign before then, suddenly that budget process would be taken over by the Lieutenant Governor, Kathy Hochul. I think Governor Cuomo is using the power of the budget negotiations and the control of the budget uh, as a tool, as a mechanism to have control over the situation. It will send Albany, whether people want to actually deal with Governor Cuomo or not in this budget crisis, because it is a budget crisis, uh, it, whether they want to deal with him or not, it would send Albany into a frenzy, into absolute chaos if he had to resign in the middle of budget time and Kathy Hochul had to take over. I think some people uh, would think, oh, it's gonna be easier to get things pushed through with Kathy Hochul because she doesn't have, frankly, the experience of, of, of running a budget in New York State. But you know, be careful what you ask for. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's good to know what you're getting into with, with Andrew Cuomo uh, and how to barter than, than not, but may, I don't know. I mean, these are big questions. These are the underlying uh, issues that are at hand right now. And it's not just about him resigning. You know, some of these, some people are saying that the assembly moving forward on impeachment is actually delay tactic to prevent him from stepping down. And part of that is because you have many assembly members who support Governor Cuomo, many who do not. Uh, you still have some Republicans in the assembly and some Republicans uh, more so in the Senate uh, who are going to feed on a moment in which Governor Cuomo, if he steps down, suddenly all the different, uh, everybody who wants something is gonna come forward preying on this budget. And just keep in mind, the economy in New York is not doing great. There's a lot of resources needed to rebuild roads, to rebuild the subway, to fund our schools, which are notoriously and illegally underfunded public schools. There is conversation about a, a, uh, a wealth tax, tax on the rich. Uh, of course, real estate is always at play here. And then there's the nursing home scandal, which does play into how, how things are funded in this state, in the state of New York. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, if he makes it through. I think he makes it through because folks 
want to be able to work through this budget in an effective way. Um, but you don't know. We don't know. And also, you know, there are plenty of people who want to run for governor. And would it be better to run against Andrew Cuomo next time or uh, in an open seat if he were to resign? Or would it be better to run against Kathy Hochul? And, you know, be careful what you ask for, because, you know, she could very well be somebody that people like a refresh. eye. Who knows? Who knows? There are a lot of factors here, but we will keep covering them because things are happening very quickly. And I love talking New York politics, as you guys know. We have a great show for you today. Uh, we're not talking about New York politics today. We are actually going to be talking about an economic bill of rights uh, that has been presented in Wisconsin. Very exciting. Uh, we have Representative Christina Shelton and Francesca Hong. Uh, those representatives are coming on to join us to discuss their, the economic bill of rights that they've presented. And later we have Natalie Shore and Piper Winkler to talk about today's news. It's Fem Friday. Fem Friday. Something uniquely we do this on our show. And shout out to the folks who profiled us for that uh, this weekend, or this week, I should say, uh, for our unique Femme Friday. It's our way of shifting and changing the way that this ecosystem works. YouTube politics is very male heavy, and we are, are very focused on shifting that. So thanks for joining us. We'll be right back with representatives from Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. This is very exciting to me. Um, as you guys know, this is Femme Friday. We talk about intersectional issues related to women, um, you know, revolving around economic justice and how it relates to women, all women. Uh, I am thrilled to have on Representative Christina Shelton. She's a state representative from Wisconsin, Wisconsin's 90th Assembly District. Uh, previously, she was appointed to the Green Bay uh, Public School Board, uh, and she was also the Northeast Regional a coordinator for the Women's March in Wisconsin. And we also have Representative Francesca Hong. She is a representative in the 76th Assembly Dis District, and she founded the Culinary Ladies Collective. I love that. Uh, thank you for joining today. We're very thrilled. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to do this because it's always tough with, with two people um, when you're on talking about the same topic. We'll just go in order. So we'll start with Francesca, if you're okay with that, Representative Hong, and Representative uh, Shelton right afterwards, if that works. Sounds cool. great. It's the Zoom thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Someday this will end. Um, all right. So this is this is a very exciting uh, plan that you've put forward. There's an economic bill of rights uh, in in Wisconsin. Is this new? Um, this economic justice bill of rights is this is this a new concept for state legislatures? Have you seen this happen before? Uh, let's start with Francesca, Representative Hong. Oh, we can't hear you. Oh, I haven't done that in so long. And of course, I'm going to do it today. <laughs> you know, it's funny how many people are like, I do this every day. And it's still, don't worry. We all uh, I've got a fancy new button on my headphones now. So I get to click that instead of looking for my mouse. Um, no, you know, at this time, I am not aware of other state legislatures that have introduced a resolution that looks like this. Um, I, but this idea, this concept is not new. You know, nothing in politics is, is very novel. If you think about it, everything is kind of a reiteration of something else. And right now, I think more than ever, we are seeing the needs and the demands of the people are, are very much the same as what we needed a long time ago. Uh, Representative Shelton, are you, you know, related to that? Um, was there an inspiration from history or, or any other economic justice bill of rights? 
I 100% believe we have to look to our history and our past to understand where we are today. And a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Harvey K out of U- UWGB, Shout I out. think you know him well. <laughs> you know, we were talking about how do you set a new vision and how do you vision cast as, as Democrats and as progressives so that we no longer hold this mushy middle, we don't uphold the status quo. And in those conversations with him, we talked a lot about FDR and his second bill of, of rights. And this is really a nod to the past. We are reviving that idea that, you know, with public commitments, um, we can uphold our values uh, through a moral and economic imperative. So let's talk about the the substance of this plan. Um, You know, what made it in, uh, Representative Hong, and why? So I think the key word that we added in that, you know, we didn't see back in uh, FDR's Bill of Rights was the word justice. And we needed to make sure that it was encompassing of a growing uh, progressive party that is multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational and multicultural. So language here was really important. And we also wanted to make sure that we had an alliance, things that was really hard for people to say no to. It's really difficult to say no to the fact that everyone is deserving and have the right to clean water, to safe housing, to uh, free and fair public education, um, a healthy planet, a livable wage, and a justice system that works for everyone. Um, Right now, the status quo is upholding an institutional white supremacy that benefits the rich and universality. And so these are not radical ideas. These are ideas that are embraced by many, and it's time that uh, that we take back that narrative and really build on the power of people to push progressive policies that do work for more than more than the current status quo. Representative Shelton. Absolutely. And I, I love listening to my colleague, Representative Hong, talk about this, because let me tell you, as friends and as colleagues, it is so fun to get to work on this project together. I mean, it's the best of both both worlds. And, you know, as a party, we need to speak more consistently and clearly about not only our aspirations as legislators, but as people in community. This is an intersectional approach to understanding economic security. We often think, I, I think we, when we think about security, about living wage jobs and unions, and those things are clearly important. But one, I believe, cannot be economically secure if you don't have access to childcare, if you don't have access to transportation and, and to housing. Oh, and by the way, you know, are these commitments, they're not merit-based or means-tested. We mm. believe everyone, no matter who you who you are or where you come from, deserves these rights. And we think as, as Democrats, we need to stand on these commitments and fight for working people because they have been fighting for us. So I'm curious how this gets translated into a law. I mean, it's traditionally, you know, you look at a law and it's, you know, it's one law about um, one bill about giving everybody uh, the right, you know, banning fracking so that water is clean or a clean water act. Um, How does this all work into, you know, there's a lot in this. It's a huge package, which is very impressive. But how does that work into one uh, bill, Representative Hong? So I don't think it does. I think our resolution <laughs> is, is creating a, a, a vision and a framework and, and really a North Star for our caucus to be able to say we are fighting for our constituents. And we also want to say these are the policies that we are fighting for, because policymaking, if you think about it, is based on principle and power and sharing that. And so in order to do that effectively, I think if we have this Economic Justice Bill of Rights, we then go to our colleagues and as freshman legislators, we're coming in and, and it's. It, you know, it's drinking from a fire hose every day is, is kind of navigating new rules and procedures. But we know that there have been work 
there's been work being done by our colleagues who have been here for a while, and they've been trying to push uh, policies that are very much crafted with the same vision, but you know, it's, it's still somewhat murky, and, and we haven't always been consistent on messaging. And now with this resolution, we can really um, help to build coalitions um, to support some of the legislation that are going to come, because um, we are going to have to take it piece by piece. You know, they're, they're, we have the CLEAR Act right now that um, impacts, uh, that uh, gets funding for PFAS and, and mm -hmm. mitigating PFAS and and we have uh, folks working on a uh, um, birth control visa and I think that is directly tied to childcare. So again, this is the vision. This is the North Star, and this is uh, a tool really for us to continue to use to be able to push policy and and smaller legislation that we're gonna uh, have to kind of uh, use uh, before our before we're able to take control of the majority. So, so, Representative Shelton, what's first on the list? Um, is there something in the package that's most dire and, and most likely to pass? Well, right now what we're building is some coalitions within our caucus, but then in the community and across the state as well. And so we certainly have a, some ideas of where we think we'll start, but we also want this to come from people. Um, obviously, you know, we would love to see living wage jobs, $15 minimum wage, uh, the ability for our, you know, for workers to unionize both publicly and, and privately and to have access to collective bargaining. So mm -hmm. right now there's some work being done. Um, looking at that as the first package. But, you know, we also want to have co conversations with our colleagues and say, what are you working on that we can get behind? And then we'll bring the people to also get behind you mm -hmm. so that maybe this legislation doesn't pass in the next year or two, but maybe it passes in four years and we can do the legwork behind it. Mm -hmm. um, we want to bring more people to the table and to pull up more chairs and to bring more people into the process of government. Because if the government is made up of people. We think people should be involved in, in the decisions that influence their lives every single day. So who was part of the collective that helped you uh, build this resolution? Was, was this a, a coalition of folks that came together, Representative Hong? So, I mean, credit is definitely due to our amazing staff and our um, the, the teams that really um, worked with us on this, all of our colleagues who signed on, but really, um, you know, the, the most credit goes to the grassroots organization, but as well as labor, organized labor um, and coalitions that have been working boots on the ground um, for for years, whether it be mm -hmm. to um, get voters out or um, on uh, building agendas and trying to communicate that to legislators. Um, this is this, I think, you know, working alongside them and getting their support was critical and really just the first step. And, and if for us, this resolution is, is our kind of down payment and our commitment to showing uh, folks that we are committed to an inside outside strategy, that our platforms and our, our position um, need to be used alongside and with um, organizations that uh, have, have supported this. Representative Shelton, anybody else that, that's been left out? You know, it, it's it's all of the people doing all of the things. You know, I think Fran and I are committed to taking it to the streets, taking the work out of out of our capital offices and working alongside people every single day and not centering ourselves in the work and positioning ourselves that we know everything. We want working people who are impacted every single day to again be part of this decision making and we that coalition building will be the power through which we can build, you know, a, not only a, a progressive 
of uh, Wisconsin, but to bring back our progressive roots from around the country. You know, we have it in our DNA to do hard things. And what I think is inspiring about this is that we have to reignite our collective imaginations that government can work for the people and can do hard things. So um, I, you know, I've received such uh, such a magnificent amount of support for this. I think people are excited and there's a belief again that government government can work for the people. Okay, so Wisconsin has this this horrible history of uh, right wing attacks against uh, I don't have to tell you guys um, against uh, uh, unions, uh, the ability you know the right to organize as a collective bargaining. We we remember the storming of the Capitol. But yeah, we we remember. I do at least. I don't know how many people in the audience do. Um, how do you push forward something so which shouldn't be revolutionary, but it is uh, in the environment that you have at the Capitol right now with such a strong Republican Party, with the Koch brothers just, you know, nuzzled into every crevice of, of government uh, in Wisconsin is like, which is, you know, the testing ground for them, I guess. Um, how, do you, how do you get this accomplished, Representative Hong? I think I have to go back to what my colleague Christina said. It is in the power of the people and there are more people engaged now than before. Um, And my candidacy is actually kind of a, a a proof of that. You know, we um, coming from the service industry and having very little political experience, you know, that is, I have shown that it is possible to kind of break through the gatekeepers and say, no, we demand access to more information, to education, to understanding the process of how important it is and what state legislators are doing, how it impacts everyday lives of everyday working people. Um, I think we continue to, uh, you know, increase engagement, that we continue to work alongside coalitions who have been organizing in their communities and really show that um, the legislators that are currently in the legislature um, across the aisle do not serve the people, do not serve their constituents and actually continue to attack them. Yesterday in a committee meeting, um, we had uh, a direct attack on Wisconsin workers as being disincentivized from coming back to work. And I had never heard anyone speak of constituents like this in an open manner. And I think folks are ready to fight and Democrats need to continue to show that we are ready to fight for them and willing to fight alongside them as well. Are Democrats uh, fully on board, Representative Sheldon? They are 100%. But more importantly, I think we see a lot of independents. We see a lot of people who have been checked out, people who might have left the Democratic Party and said, you know, this maybe they were Sanders supporters or, you know, they were identifying as a further left wing. I think those folks also are looking for a home. But I'd actually like to go back to your question uh, to Representative Hom. We have to remember who we are in this state. And the past 10 years cannot define who we are as Wisconsinites. Um, You know, we have a progressive history here that has set the tone nationally for a very long time. And I say this a lot that, you know, the the gerrymandering that we have here, our unfair maps are the worst in the country. And in a way, it's a form of political gaslighting because Mm -hmm. it tricks voters into believing that we are a deeply red state when the truth of the matter is we are not. We are we are blue state. Uh, we, we are a purple state, but we have more Democrats than what our maps show. So it's our job to remember that and to go into communities and to commit to our values and to tell people that we're going to fight for them, that no matter you know if our legislation pass or, passes or not, that we're going to keep showing up. And I think that's what we need to do a better job of because this is going to be, we have to fight um, in everything that we do and every action that we take for working people. What's the timeline on this? 
what can we what, what can we do as an audience outside of Wisconsin or those who are watching from Wisconsin to help you out um, you know in your campaign around this? Well, we've got spring elections coming up and we had a pretty piss poor turnout for our, pr our primary in February. And we've got important elections in the spring. These are city council elections. These are county board elections. And, and in Wisconsin, it's a superintendent election. It is critical that we get everyone out to vote. And we, you know, relational organizing is more powerful than ever right now. And I think we have communities who not only believe in change, but believe in transformation, but it has to start at the ballot box and it has to start with people understanding that their voice matters and there are people in government who are listening, like Representative Christina Shelton and I. Representative Shelton, what can people do to help out? Well, we do have a petition that is out. Um, we are asking people to join us. The next phase of this project is to create an organizing mechanism where we'll be connecting with labor groups and clean water groups, racial justice groups, again, all under the umbrella of this economic justice bill of rights. Um, but, you know, we are asking people to get engaged wherever they are in whatever lane they, you know, exist in, in, the, in, the, in their homes, in the conversations with their family and friends. Every day provides an opportunity to engage in conversations that I think for a long time we've been taught not to talk about, right? Don't mm -hmm. talk about politics. It's rude. And that has weakened our inability, our ability to, to withstand some tough conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly inspired by our young people every day. You know, I have a 13 year old at home. She does not shy away from talking about racial injustice and police brutality. And we've, we've got to look to our young people and give them space to come to the table. And uh, I just ask people, wherever you are, keep up the good fight. Um, keep reading, keep learning, keep talking, because um, a brighter future is possible if we actually work together. Representatives Hong and Shelton, thank you for joining us. This is great. Uh, hopefully you're setting the model for other states. New York would be amazing. Uh, in the legacy of FDR, it's the least we could do. Uh, many other states, I know Hawaii is working on something right now as well. We've had somebody on, um, you know, in the summer old mode. So it's 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 great work. Thank you for, for joining us and good luck. Let us know what happens. We're cheering you on. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, we will be right back with our fabulous panel. Uh, we have Piper Winkler from our team and Natalie Shuron to join us about to talk about today's news. There's a lot of it. <laughs> All right, so Sunset Lake CBD, uh, you guys have heard me talk about uh, the CBD movement and how I was resistant to it. I tried a few, wasn't loving it, and then I tried Sunset Lake CBD. And there's a reason why it works, because they are an ethical company. They're a progressive company. They're a farmer-owned company that ships out craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for everyone. They cover, they offer uh, tinctures, gummies, fudge, solves, and coffee, uh, which is designed to help with stress, aches, and pains, and I get a lot of all those things. It was originally a dairy farm for the Ben and Jerry's, you know, the Ben and Jerry's that supported Bernie Sanders, the Ben and Jerry's out of Vermont, uh, but they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Customers, uh, when you buy Sunset Lake CBD, you support sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities and creates meaningful employment in that community because you know what? Their, their minimum wage is $15 an hour. <laughs> Interesting. And employees also own the majority of the company and they support independent media like our show, The Nomiki Show, 
and the David Pakman show and the majority report, you know, those guys. Um, I have talked about the products that I've been using. I have to buy more, more of the tincture because when I, when I threw up my back a few days ago, I think I used like half the ball, <laughs> but instead of using painkillers or air, you know, uh, aspirin or whatever it is that normally uh, helps with my ailments, I've been using the CB and I put it in my drink. And then it also does this thing where it kind of, it's like, like there's like a little bit of like a, a moisture that is left on my lips. So it feels like I have chapstick and then I get to taste it's, it's really lovely. I love the tincture, but I know Dorsey, you use it too. Um, What's yeah, your CBD I, situation like right now? Right now, it is almost on empty. I think we've got some gummies left, but yeah, I'm waiting to get some tincture and uh, some more gummies because those are our favorites. But uh, yeah, I tried a bunch of CBD before and I was always kind of like, eh, it really doesn't do anything, you know, or you just like had to take a lot of it to like get any relief, which was what I was looking for. Um, because, you know, I, uh, partake in the other stuff too. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm kind of chasing that kind of feeling where I just want to like chill out and not really like, you know, go into a catatonic despair sometimes. So this is a good alternative. And yeah, like I said, I tried a bunch before they were not very good and, you know, saw the ad on majority report, uh, was with it with like the company's ethics and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, yeah, well, might as well give it a shot. And it's been awesome. It's been a mainstay in our apartment uh, ever since. Yeah, it's funny because I have hooked my parents and they're buying products now. And then my aunt, she had the fudge. And so she's really into that. But um, I think what's really good about it for me is that I have a lot of ailments in different ways. Like I have migraines. I uh, threw my back out a few days ago, as you know. Um, I have sleep issues. And then I also, ha I'm just giving you all of my ailments. Like what, what's going to happen to me when I'm like 70? Um, and I have sciatica. And so I use Arnica on my sciatica, but their Solve, I forgot to mention this, has Arnica in it. So basically like this one product is treating all of my issues. Um, you know, it's pretty cool. So anyways, if you uh, would like to purchase some products from Sunset Lake CBD, go to sunsetlakecbd.com. There's a promo code. Nomi, N-O-M-I, you'll get 20% off of your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com. And the promo code is Nomi, N-O-M-I. All right, we will be right back with our fabulous panel. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, it's Femme Friday, my favorite day. We have Natalie Shore. She is a writer. She's a progressive. You've read her work everywhere. Jacobin, LA Times, et cetera, et cetera. Was the former head researcher for Adam Ruins Everything. Did I miss anything, Natalie? No, I think that sums it up. <laughs> Thank you so for having going. me. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Um, and Piper Winkler, who is part of team, team TNS. She's one of our producers over here. And she's also, uh, you are, are you the founder of Harvard YDSA, but I know you're the co-chair, but are you also the founder? Yes, I, I am. So. We're the, the first generation of Harvard YDSA. Nice. I love it. Well, okay. There's a lot of news today. Um, a lot of news that makes me cringe and I'm sure will make you cringe, but I want to start off with Senator Marco Rubio, who is now labor advocate, spokesperson, uh, escalating a push by ambitious Republicans to spotlight American workers. Senator Marco Rubio today, uh, today will side with the union in a high stakes organizing campaign at an Amazon facility in Alabama. Say what? <laughs> this is good, right? Maybe it's like the entrance point. Do you think he's going to be a Democrat soon? Uh, Piper, what are your th thoughts on this? I know there's a... I 
I just saw the story and I know that there's more to it in terms of, I might be misrepresenting this, but I remember him making some remark about how if this is what the, the company and the business wants, then that's good. But something, I don't know, something tells me that Marco Rubio's interests are not aligned with rank and file Amazon workers. So while I'm not truly sure what his motives here and are here in backing the union, just like obviously it took Joe Biden a very, very long time to even just acknowledge the fact publicly while this is going on that workers deserve unions. I am very, I'm very hesitant to say that Marco Rubio is truly on the side of the workers, you know? Yeah. Um, is this, Natalie, is this part of like the strategy that the Josh Hollies of the world have right now are taking on big tech and like leaning more populist, maybe on like one thing because it's not going to cost them anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good way to look at it. Uh, I think I've, I've been over my Republican thesis many times. The entire purpose of the party is to uh, act as a wish fulfillment vehicle for capital. And I think that Marco Rubio is pretty on board with that project. Uh, that said, I think that they're very happy to, uh, you know, nod aesthetically at uh, more, you know, populist worker aligned things because, you know, their, their base is reconstituting itself. But I don't think that that will ever be met by, uh, you know, genuine redistribution policies uh, or, you know, genuine challenging capital. I think in this case, uh, the Republican base sees Amazon as, you know, a particularly liberal company, which, you know, if you have any sort of material analysis, if you understand the divide between capital and labor, I mean, there's no such thing as a left of center uh, mega corporation, particularly right. not the one that yielded the world's richest person. Uh, so, you know, I think that we will see a lot of uh, surface level nods toward this sort of thing as a way to bolster that brand, because I think that they do see that the brand itself uh, has some salience, but I don't think it'll be backed by much. That said, I'd rather have more people support the union vocally than not. So I think that there is an opportunity for liberals and the left to, you know, kind of point to that for our own propagandistic reasons right. and say, oh, look, even, even Marco right. Rubio supports the union. Unions are good. We should be doing that. Right. But I don't think we should delude ourselves about what this means. Yeah, that was my thought exactly was the, you know, use it as a wedge. Like if you can't, I mean, it's sort of like the same thing with the PRO Act where, uh, Henry Quaylar is the only Democrat to not vote for it. And five Republicans voted for it. Like there's an ad right there, Henry Quaylar <laughs> and five Republicans. Anywho, um, all right, so let's let's move on to Tucker Carlson because I, oh God, he's so- Friend weird. of the show. Friend of the show, yes. I was a friend of his show at one point. I would go on and debate him. I wouldn't, I wasn't friends with him. Um, where's that Tucker Carlson story? Oh boy, did I jump ahead too far, Dorsey? I think I did. Anywho, oh, there it is. Uh, Tucker Carlson has made comments regarding female troops. Quote, uh, we, what we absolutely won't do is take personnel advice from a talk show host is what the Pentagon's top spokesperson has said. Uh, Tucker Carlson like went after, I think there's a clip of it. Can we play that clip? China won't explain the reasoning behind this plan, but there are some clues. Last year, we learned that China has quickly developed the world's largest naval force. In 2015, China had 255 battle force ships. Now they have more than 360. And many of those ships are more capable than anything in the American naval fleet. So how are we responding to this? 
Well, at the White House yesterday, Joe Biden addressed it effectively. What's the American military's response? Here's what Joe Biden said. Some of it's relatively uh, straightforward work where we're making good progress, designing body armor that fits women properly, tailoring combat uniforms for women, creating maternity flight suits, and updating, uh, updating requirements for their hairstyles. And some of it is going to take an, uh, you know, an, an intensity of purpose and mission to really change the culture and habits that cause women to leave the military. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. Well, China's military becomes more masculine as it's assembled the world's largest oh navy. Our military needs to become, as Joe Biden says, more feminine, whatever feminine means anymore, since men and women no longer exist. The bottom line is it's out of control and the Pentagon's okay. going along with this. Again, this is a mock. I'm like so angry at this whole thing, <laughs> just from every single aspect, like the Joe Biden thing. I'm angry at, at Tucker Carlson. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great to have a woman in this conversation? I, just just to start with that. Um, Piper, what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like you have to have the, the head of the Pentagon on your next Femme Friday. <laughs> about girl bossing the military. No, I completely understand what you're saying. There's truly so much to unpack here. And I think what is so frustrating is just this presentation of the, this culture war over what feminism is that has no material impact. Like the, the real stakes that women are facing not being paid adequately for their work, like having wages stolen, obviously uh, facing discrimination in the workplace and um, not having access to unions in many cases. These are all being glossed over as well as many other issues that, that you talk about on, on the show all the time are being glossed over in favor of this, is the US's military so feminine that this is being framed against the masculinity of, of China's army. And then of course, there's an entire, there's a layer of sinophobia to, to deal with as well. The fact that obviously the, like, the arbitrary benchmark being set here is that the US has to gauge its military force against China and why this is meaningful for the working class is in no way addressed here. I, watching this clip, I mean, I know that I don't care about this argument that's being formulated. I know it's wrong, but watching this, you would not get a sense as to why any person should care about, about how masculine or feminine any army is and why in fact we should be investing so much money in this when of course like the real problems that people are facing um, are not having money invested in them by the government. So- I mean, missiles are very phallic. So uh, if you really yeah. wanna know where the money is being spent, I'm gonna guess it's not on uh, the the pregnancy wear of, of, of female officers. I'm gonna say it's probably on the phallic missiles that we never launch anywhere and just sit there rotting into our land and, and tainting our water. and. Um, Natalie, I mean, okay, so obviously Joe Biden's not focusing on real feminist issues, but even if he was going to, even if there were going to be reforms in the military, like maybe address the rape culture a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are more feminist issues at hand, and I think that what Piper said uh, makes a lot of sense, but I'd also like to note, I mean, uh, nothing good comes from woke militarism, right? Like, <laughs> it's like... I mean, the U.S. Army is the most reactionary institution in the world. 
Uh, it's there to uphold the interests of the American state and of, you know, capitalists at gunpoint. Uh, and there's an enormous amount of suffering that happens around the world because of that. Uh, and, you know, I think in some way you can see that Tucker Carlson and Joe Biden were doing very similar things mm. in those segments, right? Like they were both doing military boosterism. Uh, they were both cheering on the Imperial project, mm -hmm. uh, carrying on that very bipartisan propaganda project. And for Tucker Carlson's audience, uh, that plays better when you kind of, you know, rah, rah patriarchy a little bit. And Joe Biden is speaking to an audience that, you know, wants a few woke platitudes. And both of them are doing the same thing. Uh, as Piper said, uh, you know, the, the fact that China is this growing economy that, you know, is within, I guess, a stone's throw, relatively speaking, of being able to take on U.S. military might, uh, framing that as a problem that we are going to meet with our military might is, um, <laughs> you know, something I would like to see Americans question and push back against more. Uh, but instead, we are, you know, talking about this um, very, very surface level culture war uh, within the institution and not, you know, questioning what it's for and why we have it. And, you know, the degree to which it does hurt women overseas, the way that it, uh, you know, hurts women in the United States, the way that it suppresses workers around the world. Uh, and I would much rather talk about those things from a feminist perspective than uh, about, you know, what, <laughs> what woman gets what flight suit, uh, how far along in her pregnancy. I mean, it's just, it's not even like, even if he was to go lean more into the wokeism, he could at least address the crisis of rape in, in the military. He could, uh, I mean, there's so much more he could have done um, if he wanted to stay in that lane. And that's what's just baffling to me is, it's been, I mean, there were documentaries on this that won Oscars, like, and you yeah. still can't address it. So anyways, um, uh, I want to uh, briefly talk about this $1,400 uh, COVID relief bill or the, the the payment that came out of the COVID relief bill. Uh, it's the stimulus check that we're all supposed to get sometime this weekend in our in our bank accounts. But turns out <laughs> in this bill, uh, there are no rules stopping debt collectors from seizing those $1,400 checks when they land in the bank accounts. I mean, credit card Joe? <laughs> Anyone, <laughs> Natalie? I know. I know you've been following like Joe Biden's career and backing. I, I, like, why? Why? This is. Yeah. So I. I mean, I don't. I don't know. To be clear, I don't know specifically like whether Joe Biden or you know some other legislative mechanism was behind that particular rule. I mean, certainly he's not the only friend to uh, <laughs> financial. Shocker! My God. <laughs> I know. Um, you know. I mean, th that that industry more broadly is so powerful that they were able to uh, push Katie Porter off the Financial Service Committee earlier this year. Uh, which you know got a lot of headlines because she was so effective in that role on that committee. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing that those folks are pretty happy and that they were able to pull some strings to do this too. And uh, it's unconscionable. I mean, $1,400 is already way, way lower uh, than the amount of relief that people need. And knowing that people's bills have been accruing this whole time during this pandemic uh, and that the only, you know, paltry money outside of the uh, unemployment 
funds, which, you know, the unemployment money in the bill and that existed earlier is good, but, uh, you know, it's also very narrow. Not everybody who's struggling financially qualifies for unemployment. Um, and so the fact that that $1,400 can get eaten into by uh, finance consumer industry vultures is a damn shame. Well, this is like, this is why I, I, I never understood the resistance and in, in, in issuing checks every month because you have industries, major industries that have been funding uh, the neoliberal class that are dependent on cash flow, whether it's credit cards or uh, the, 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 the landlords across this country. I mean, or obviously just banks. There are so many different industries that have our lawmakers are beholden to. I don't understand why they didn't lobby for them just to print more checks. It's, it's, it's so baffling to me. And what are your thoughts, Piper? Is this Yeah, it's a really good question, especially as we're moving toward a period where, you know, uh, eviction moratoriums are also set to expire in various parts of the country, like the federal, I think the federal moratorium expires at the end of the month. And of course, in no way have all the people who are facing back months of rent been able to uh, fix their, their financial situations. And of course, how could they? Like things have not gotten better for working people in the months since this was put in place. And now the fact that that money is going to be seized uh, from people who could, who, who need that money to, to exist and continue to survive during this economic crisis, the fact it's being taken by debt collectors makes no sense in terms of a government that, that works for working people. And of course, all of the sense in terms of, as Natalie has discussed, a government that is totally led by these lobbies. So I think the fact that there's not an investment in recognizing that people need to be able to stay in their homes and that, of course, their ability to maintain those homes uh, depends upon them getting even more support. Of course, I think the fear is acknowledging to people that the government could do this all the time and that there's no reason why it shouldn't. You know, the fact that a lot of people could could definitely use a regular UBI from the government yeah. could regularly yeah. use that kind of support um, and that they they're not getting it and they should absolutely be getting it during the pandemic and after. I think acknowledging that would be a real reckoning with the way that um, the US state approaches actually supporting people who need it. So I understand that they don't want to make that statement, um, but I know that it would be much better for all of us if they were willing to do so. And that's something that we should be willing to fight for as socialists. I'm curious like how they prioritize debt. I mean, I, I assume many people have way more debt than $1,400 and there's or most people at least that'll be receiving these checks and like who gets the priority? We know student loans are, they're, they're, they're at the top of the list. Uh, there's no way out from that. But after that, like which credit cards, which I'm very curious. Um, all right. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have been following what's happened in, in Nevada uh, last weekend, the democratic party of Nevada was taken over by uh, socialist democratic socialists, huge story we covered on the show. Um, it was it, it was the executive committee that was taken over, which really calls the shots. And as a result, uh, the staff left. Some of it, the executive director was already already on the way out, and then the rest of the staff left. But they gutted the party of all its money and decided to funnel it to the DSCC and and some other places uh, to essentially pay consultants that are their friends. Just classic, classic Democratic Party. Uh, but John Ralston, who is, if, if you don't recall, he is a Nevada reporter. Uh, he is somebody everybody looks to when the caucuses happen. And he was the one in 2016 that reported on the, uh, the famous chair throwing incident that may or may not have happened. Um, so he's got a great relationship with like the progressive side. So he, he tweeted this out today. Oh my God, I just couldn't. 
All right. As I said, I'm learning a lot. Quote, the Las Vegas DSA Socialist Feminist Committee views capitalism and not just the patriarchy as a source of gender oppression. Ladies and gentlemen, your new Nevada Democratic Party. And I love Mike from PA, friend of the show, says, John Ralston, please read a book by a feminist theorist for the first time challenge. This <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just made me laugh. I'm sorry, guys. But like... <sighs> This is, it's just, it's too cute. It's too cute. And they're so oblivious to, they really should be covering DSA in my opinion, because if the DSA is taking over the Democratic Party, these reporters have a, they have a duty to understand what DSA represents. I mean, what do you think that they think the left is, Piper, as a DSA leader? It's really funny how similar this kind of fear mongering around socialist feminism is to the way that Tucker Carlson was speaking in a clip that we just heard a second ago. Ladies and gentlemen, perhaps the fact that women are materially impacted by the way that our capitalist economy exploits people, you know, maybe this is something that uh, this is something that we should think about. And um, the fact that this is a new idea or is in some way too radical is, of course, the reason that one of the reasons that, that I'm organizing within the DSA, because I think that it's essential that we understand this and many people understand how this this already impacts them in their everyday lives. But it's, of course, infuriating to see this all lifted out of the realm of talking about people's material struggles solely again into this into this culture war where everything is about radical over, you know, emphasizing this um, the fact that the person who's tweeted this clearly wants us to believe that smash the patriarchy is something that belongs on a mug and that feminism is not actually a struggle you bring into your everyday life and is something that you seek to win not only by talking just about a single issue, but understanding intersectionally how strengthening unions and achieving, for example, universal health care would improve women's lives. I mean, obviously, that's what a vision of socialist feminism means to me. And of course, it has to do with the way that capitalism takes away from people the very basic things that they need to survive. So I'm thrilled that the Nevada, the Nevada DSA and, and Bernie people who are now in the Democratic Party are pushing that message because it seems very clear to me. Yeah. It's almost like they need to have conference calls with these reporters uh, to educate them a little bit more about basic, just, it's, it's mind blowing that this guy could have an entire career and, and tweet that out mockingly, but I'm, I'm, I should be surprised, but I'm not. Natalie, what's your take? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to, to take his tweet in good faith, um, you know, maybe he was being a little sarcastic and maybe I'm sure that he was genuinely being confronted by this argument for the first time. And I think that it's very possible to be a relatively educated person in the United States and really have no sense of material relations, no understanding of you know, Marxist critiques of capitalism, et cetera, um, by design, right? Like we're, we're not taught those things on purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting is I think that COVID has actually been um, a, a moment of, um, you know, great visibility for socialist feminist arguments, right. you know, like Sylvia Federici has been yeah. in the New York Times recently, um, you know, the idea that uh, we have to sell our time for wages and that in a country with no universal um, uh, welfare programs that were then pulled in multiple directions. I think people understood that, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not as if that's completely new, uh, but I do think that it was the first time that a lot of uh, middle, upper middle class 
um, professionals were really forced to confront these things uh, to the degree that they have. And, you know, I hope that there ends up being more understanding of, um, you know, capitalism. And I, I mean, I, I basically, I, I don't use the word patriarchy in isolation anymore. I think it can be, you know, a helpful descriptor. I think that something can be, you know, a patriarchal uh, uh, scenario or whatever, you know, something something along those lines. I think we understand what that means, but uh, you know, there is no patriarchy uh, without, I mean, at least not in the way that we understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very, very important to understand uh, feminist oppression through a leftist lens and to understand these things. And, you know, I hope that, I hope that he reads that whole thing and asks some follow-up questions and <laughs> joins one of the events that I'm sure that they yeah. put on in their chapter or others. Uh, I think that these are things that are really great to understand. And in my experience, I think that a lot of maybe liberal or progressive women hearing socialist feminist arguments really is a game changer for them. I think oh, that- uh, you know, they, they, they're powerful arguments in my, uh, experience. Um, and so I hope that more people hear them. Absolutely. And we, and we need to lean on unions to make that case as well, especially the female led unions to connect the dots because John Ralston is a, a reporter who covers politics in Nevada, which is a heavy union state. And the fact that he couldn't connect the dots there, uh, after reporting there yeah. for that long, that's what shocks me is how, how you can, uh, operate in those spaces sort of shocks yeah. me. I don't know. I mean, it's just an opportunity. I, this is why you have to take over. The, the DSA has to take over the Democratic Party because when they win, all these reporters, this isn't why, but like all these reporters are now confronted with, uh, they have to learn. They have to learn. So anyways, Piper Winkler, Natalie Shore, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for Femme Friday. Thank you so much. Happy Femme Friday, everyone. Happy Femme Friday. We should tweet that out. Everyone get that going. Happy Femme Friday. Okay. All right. Thank you to everybody in the chat. Thank you to Professor Harvey K because he connected us with uh, our, 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 our main panel today talking about the Wisconsin uh, Economic Justice Bill of Rights. It was amazing. Um, so I want to give him a shout out. I know that he's in the chat right now. And he did ask me, he said, you might want to ask who... Oh, I don't know that. What happened to the La Follette pro progressive tradition in Wisconsin to put it in historical perspective? So I, I missed that opportunity. So hopefully Professor Harvey K can come on next time and, and remind us. All right, some shout outs. Art, thank you for that love. That's so, so generous. Thank you so much. Um, Chuck Diesel. A moderator sending his love saying, happy Friday, Nomi Key. Your next cup of coffee is on me. That's a few cups of coffee there, but thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. Kyla Rosado, Hawaii is doing a similar economic bill of justice legislative package, part of the feminist economic recovery package via Cara Jabola. She came on in our show uh, a few weeks ago. If you missed that, Kyla or anybody else, go check it out. It's in the archives. Um, she joined to talk about what's happening in Hawaii. It's really incredible and inspirational. And she came out of Fem Friday, so it'll be easy to find. Uh, Pete from Oakland, no better day of the week than Fem Friday. Agreed. Thursdays are also great. I agree. Guess you just dominate the awesome political commentary sphere, Nomiki. Love your perspective and voice. Thank you. I love our guests. I say every day is my favorite. I know that's cheesy, but I really do. Every day has a different vibe. I always leave the show feeling inspired. So hopefully you do too. <clears throat> Fire, uh, excuse me, Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, sending his love, says Trump must not have found funded the Navy. Why did Trump hand Biden a broken military, Tucker? Why did Trump forget to build boats, Tucker? Where were you for the last four years, Tucker? Tucker failed us. You're right, because Tucker was the one in, in Trump's ear. And, you know, what happened? That's what I want to know. 
All right, we've got some other shout outs. Uh, Harvey K was, Professor Harvey K was in YouTube today. And big thank you to Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. And of course, our YouTube moderators, uh, Bob C. Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel again. And of course, on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler. Thank you as always. And as always, stay in solidarity. We will see you on Tuesday. <laughs>